Good morning. Y'all can uh, pray that my voice holds out this morning. I've had that stuff that most people have had in Lubbock, I think. It seems to be going around, but uh, trust the Lord to give us what we need. So last week, uh, Brian began our Christmas series talking about this symphony of redemption, which I thought was a really, really good illustration. It's a masterful piece of music written by God from before the world began, and we first heard the notes ring out the day he spoke the world into existence. And like any symphony, there are movements within God's song of redemption. How many of you are symphony fans? See, I I really wasn't, to be honest with you, until I was gifted some tickets for Grant and I to attend a symphony. This has been several years ago. It was truly one of the most moving experiences of my life. I mean, it, no surprise, <laughs> it moved me to tears, all right? <laughs> but what's interesting is that every symphony, and forgive me for, if you're an expert, because I am not, but I've learned enough to know that there are movements within most every symphony. It starts with what's called the allegro. This is where the music has a pretty fast pace. It wants to draw your attention and even build some tension as the song begins. I want you to hear what that sounds like. Listen, listen to this. feel it, can't you, as the tension builds up? Well, it dramatically slows down in the second movement. It's what's called the adagio, and the pace really slows. It becomes very contemplative. I want you to listen to what this one sounds like. you to sleep, won't it? I mean, it's so peaceful, so pleasant, but then in the third movement, there's a shift, and the music begins to speed up almost as if it's in a hurry, okay? Listen to what that sounds like. feel it? And so it's building, isn't it? And what it's building to is what we all know about. That's the finale, right? The whole crescendo of the symphony when, when all the instruments are involved and you have the, the very climax. And we have a sense of what that's like, but listen to what it sounds like. So if you've been to the symphony, you are familiar with all those different movements. I wanted you to get a sense of that because whenever we talk about God's symphony of redemption that we are going to be walking through together through the Christmas season, you're going to hear something very similar. 
because it began last week in Genesis chapter 3. I would say that's the first movement of God's symphony of redemption. And we learned how the curse of sin entered the world. And like that first movement we listened to, it builds tension, right? We can kind of feel the weight of, oh, no. It's an infection of rebellion that spread throughout all humanity. We hear that very clearly in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. But as Brian reminded us that in the midst of that darkness, and that reality, that tension that that first movement built, there was a hint of hope, a promise of an offspring through the lineage of humanity. It's what the Bible calls the seed of the woman, one who would rise up against Satan's deception, who would bring a death blow to his evil intentions. You'll remember the the can that he crushed last week is another great illustration, bringing an end to Satan's evil intentions. But then we're left with a question as we finish up this first movement of God's symphony is how will that promise be fulfilled? Well, that answer is revealed, admittedly, Very slowly. Remember the second movement? Very slowly. As it is progressively exposed through the testimony of the Old Testament. Each with increasing clarity. It's kind of like putting a puzzle together with each piece. The image begins to take shape. And in the end, the the identity of this promised Redeemer is undeniably clear. So before we look at that together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful because everything that's beautiful ultimately came from you. And I believe that includes music. That includes the way our hearts are moved by what we see in nature, by what we hear in symphonies, by the beauty of a newborn child. That those all come from you. They speak of you. They tell us your story of love and grace. And so, Father, as we begin to move into this symphony of redemption, this slow progression of your increasing revelation of the answer to that question, how will you do it? How will the promise be fulfilled? Would you, even within the familiarity of some of what we'll look at, kind of give us a fresh look at the beautiful ways that you have shown us your truth so that we might be saved? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, again, that first movement of God's symphony of redemption is where we see the curse of sin, that infection of rebellion for which there was no cure. Because remember, humanity left to itself will always spiral out of control. I don't know how many times that has to repeat itself throughout our history, but it's true. We see it very early in Genesis chapter 6 verse 12 when it says, God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. We're just getting started in human history and this is the conclusion. And yet, even when that corruption was wiped away by the flood, leaving this righteous remnant of Noah and his family, 
it was only a matter of time, wasn't it? Before the depravity of man continued to be pervasive once again. We look at the Tower of Babel. It was kind of a, a culminating event. And really what it is is the Garden of Eden 2.0. Because once again, mankind is trying to be like God. And if you look real closely in our world today, you're going to see the very same thing. As we redefine marriage. As we choose our identity. As we determine who we're going to hold a grudge against and whether or not we're going to forgive. Those are divine prerogatives. But we want to claim them as our own because not unlike we see all throughout Scripture, we want to be like God. That's why the psalmist concludes. In Psalm chapter 14, verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see that if there was any who understand, any who seek after God, his conclusion, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Again, left to ourselves, humanity will spiral out of control over and over again. Our only hope is God's divine intervention. If he mercifully interrupts man's sinful depravity, it's the only hope. And I believe we see that really begin to take place initially in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Very familiar verse, but listen to what's happening here. The Lord spoke to Abraham and he said, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, here's the key, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The first thing I want you to notice here as we look at this event is that Abraham did not seek after God. God pursued Abraham. In fact, when we know his story, we know that God actually rescues Abraham out of a life of idolatry. And Abraham chose to turn and to follow God. He left what was familiar and he walked into the unknown because God made Abraham a promise. According to verse 2, we see that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. And from that nation would, become, would come a descendant that would ultimately change the world. And we, we know that because it says that through all the families of the earth, that, that, he will be, that he will bless and all the families of the earth will be impacted by that. But as we hear that promise and we know this story, we understand there's a problem, isn't there? Because he gave that promise to a man in his old age who was married to a woman who was barren and unable to have children. So how could Abraham be the father of a great nation if he could have no children? Well, he couldn't unless, once again, God intervened. Because, see, that's the beauty of this symphony of redemption. Because over and over again, God has to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He interrupts our lives to reveal his grace. And he's done that to each and every person in this room. Started in Genesis 3 with the promise of redemption that would come through the lineage of humanity. Again, the seed of a woman. 
but then we're starting to get more clarity as we see the life of Abraham and we learn that the promise will be fulfilled as a descendant of Abraham, which tells us that he will come through the nation of Israel. The seed of a woman, the nation of Israel, and then about a thousand years later. So do you see how slowly we are progressing? God speaks to David. And this is what he says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He said, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you and will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He goes on in verse 16, and he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what we know in this story is that this was a promise that God made to David during the final years of his reign. The first king, you remember, was King Saul. He was chosen by the people based on appearance. But David, the son of Jesse from the tribe of Judah, was chosen because the scripture tells us he was a man after God's own heart. Now, we hear that and we know his story and we know that David was far from perfect, wasn't he? But what we also recognize is that even in the midst of his imperfections, David had a humble and repentant heart before God. It was David who wrote in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. David's heart desire was to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And in those times that he fell short, and there were plenty, he always fell on his knees before a holy God. And God told David that the promise of redemption would come through his descendant. So now what we know is that the promised Messiah will have a royal lineage. And he will be a king of righteousness. The scripture here tells us that he will have an eternal kingdom. That God would establish his throne forever. So so you see how the puzzle is beginning to take shape. We began with the seed of a woman as a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah in the line of David. Now, fast forward another 300 years and more details emerge. But this time it comes during a period of real turmoil in the history of Israel. The nation has been divided, okay? You have the northern kingdom known as Israel. You have the southern kingdom known as Judah. But both of the kingdoms are mostly corrupt and full of rebellion. There are seasons of of spiritual revival, but by and large, they rebel against God. And they do so by by turning to idols, by adopting the religious practices and the, the culture of that day into their own. So God sends prophets to warn them, to remind them, to tell them of his goodness, to confront their sinful compromise, to call them to repentance. Micah was one of those prophets that God had sent. And and Micah lived during the time of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is one who's probably more familiar to us, but Micah lived during that same time. And, And Micah would speak about the judgment that was coming to the northern kingdom of Israel. But here's what's interesting. His message was given to the southern kingdom of Judah. It's as if he is telling them, 
Watch what God does to them because you are just as guilty as they are. And unless you come to repentance, God's judgment will come upon you as well. But even then, even despite the rebellion of God's people throughout all of the history of the nation of Israel, God consistently and faithfully preserved a remnant. And by preserving the remnant, he faithfully preserved the promise of redemption. Micah reveals some of the details of how that promise would unfold in a very familiar verse. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 where he says this. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will come forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. He brings forth, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Here's something that's, I think, really important that I want you to notice when we read this very familiar passage. Do you see how the prophecies are being stacked upon each other? That when a new one is given, it's reminding you of the old ones that have already been told? Because what does he say? He will come from the tribe of Judah. We knew that. He said that he will rule. We knew that. And now he tells us that he will be born in the city of Bethlehem. We didn't know that. Which on one hand is interesting because Bethlehem is an insignificant kind of rural city outside of the big city of Jerusalem. Kind of like New Deal or Abernathy outside of the city of Lubbock, right? And yet on the other hand, it's still significant because Bethlehem turns out to be the city that King David was born in. So this little rural town was the home of royalty. But apparently, from what we read in this passage, this is not when the beginning of this newborn person would take place. It says in verse 2, his goings forth are from long ago. The NIV says his origins are from old, from days of eternity. So let's put this together. What this is telling us is that there is one who has eternally existed who will take on flesh as the seed of a woman. That he will come from the nation of Israel, specifically through the tribe of Judah, as a descendant of David, and he will be born in the city of Bethlehem. Is the picture taking shape? Well, Isaiah is going to continue and contribute to this picture, giving us some pretty astonishing information. And again, familiar verse, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13. This is what he says. Listen now, O house of David. We're stacking prophecies, remember? Is it too slight a thing of you to try the patience of men that you try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, here's what's interesting here. In the context, this prophecy of Isaiah is being spoken to Ahaz, the king of Judah, who, if you know any of the history of Judah, there were some good kings and there were some bad kings, and Ahab was one of the worst. He was known to have sacrificed his own children in pagan worship. That's why he's trying the patience of God. And that's why 
we see that he's rejecting the mercy of God through his sinful rebellion. God promises that judgment will come upon the nation of Judah. And we know historically how that happens. It's Babylon, right? Babylon will come in and take Israel captive. But before that happens, the prophet Isaiah says that there will be a sign that these events are about to take place. Because in the meantime, Ahaz has made an evil alliance with Assyria. Instead of trusting in God for his protection, he's trusted in the evil kings of Assyria. And as a result, he says there's going to be a sign when that day will come, when that will be broken, and not only will Assyria be destroyed, Israel will be taken captive. And I believe in its context, there was a virgin at the time of this promise who was then married to a man who then had a child. And when that child was at of a certain age, these, begin, these events begin to unfold. And we know that's true because of what we see in verse 16. It says, for, behold, for before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste, which is exactly what happened. The Babylonians came in and destroyed the Assyrian Empire. They, they took Israel captive, again, fulfilling the promise of God. But, as you and I know, that's not the only time that verse is used in Scripture to promote the significance of some, someone born of a virgin, right? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God spoke through Matthew to quote this very same verse as a fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 says, Now all of this took place, talking about the birth of Jesus, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with him. Which makes it very clear that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy which had a double fulfillment over time. It reminds us that things are coming together, that every piece of prophecy is taking shape. And here's what's fascinating. Okay, We just looked at four very significant prophecies out of the 400 plus prophecies in the Old Testament that speaks of the promised Messiah. Jesus is the seed of the woman, the, the lineage of humanity who would crush Satan's power, overcoming evil through his death and resurrection, thereby conquering the power of sin's control. He came through the nation of Israel, through the tribe of Judah, as a descendant of David, born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. What a beautiful picture that is. Undeniably pointing us to the promise of Jesus as our long-awaited Savior. That's why John, I believe, he has something like this in mind when he writes the words in 1 John 5.20 and says, and we know, and I want you to read this with absolute certainty. He says, and we know that the Son of God has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
This is the true God and eternal life. See, I hope one of the things that happens as we celebrate Christmas during this time of year is that the celebration of Christmas builds your confidence in the faithfulness of God. Because let me remind you, what we just walked through is just the second movement of the song of redemption. The best is yet to come. As we prepare for his first coming, let's be reminded of his second coming as well. And the fulfillment of the first should give us that same certainty that John speaks of when we look towards the second. Remember in our study of Hebrews, right? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, So Christ also, having been once offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The fulfillment of the first should build and strengthen our assurance in the second. And in the meantime, there's still more promises. Let me remind you of one. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 14, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. That's a promise. I will come to you. So think about what we're seeing and and being reminded of here this morning. God promised a redeemer and he fulfilled it, didn't he? Jesus is our savior. We, we just celebrated what we believe to be true about his death and resurrection on our behalf. But God also promised us the Spirit, and he fulfilled that one too, didn't he? He didn't leave us as orphans. He leads us as the Spirit of truth. God has a plan. He keeps his promises. He came to earth to rescue us from sin. He is present through His Spirit to give us victory over sin. And here's the best news of all. He will come again, and in that day, will eradicate sin, abolishing it for eternity. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That's why we can sing that song, not just looking to the past, but with hopeful expectation to the future. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I'm amazed every time I look at your word and I see with what detail you spoke of the promise that you made from before the world began and how exactly that would be fulfilled in such a way that we could see it so clearly it would literally be staring us in the face. So Father, this morning, I pray that we see your face In the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the promise fulfilled. Lord, as we celebrate your first coming and rejoice in the gift of what you accomplished, may we be reminded of your second and look eagerly for the day when you will return. Not just conquering sin, not just giving us victory over sin, but abolishing sin for all eternity so that we can live in your presence with the life that you've ultimately created us for. All because 
of the most generous gift of grace that none of us deserved, but you so freely give. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. I do hope you see it clearly. It's, Christmases are always a challenge for me as a pastor because I think, man, what am I going to say this year that they hadn't heard the last 13 years I gave Christmas series? But, you know, I'm, um, I'm reminded that one of the most common and important repetitions in Scripture is the word remember. Because we're a forgetful people. And we get lost in our daily routines and the things that so easily encumber us. And we need to be reminded. And so I just want to encourage you not only to look back and to remember what we're celebrating at Christmas, and not only even looking forward to the anticipation as a return, but just know that God has a plan, that he's faithful to his promises, and know where, no matter where you are in the moment of life, which may be really hard, that he is present with you, that he will not leave you as orphans, he will give you what you need, and he will give you his presence. Rest in it. Amen? Lord, thank you so much. For reminding us, you know, because you made us, we're forgetful people, and we need to remember. We need to remember that you're a God who has a plan from before the world began, and we have seen it with our eyes. We have recognized it in our heart. It has been revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we anticipate the day of his return, but until that moment, we thank you for the assurance that you will not leave us with orphans as orphans, that that you are present with us, that your helper is here to guide us, to give us what we need day by day, moment by moment, no matter how dark or difficult those days may be. We trust you. We love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.